Good evening. Tonight we get to look at the doctrine of salvation, and this is uh, the next study in your study guide. This is the last one you have that I've printed in the fresh copy. I will get you the next one soon, hopefully before Sunday morning, but for those of you here on Wednesday night, I'll have them for you by then, certainly. Uh, if not, I'll give them to you Sunday morning. I should have handed them out tonight, but I had to take a trip to Rio Rancho this afternoon, so it kind of... We're going to talk about eternal security separately because it deserves more time uh, because we have to deal with some other errors and positions that are out there uh, and the variety of, of people and what they say about it. So we're going to talk about salvation itself tonight. This might seem like, well, this is everything I already know. Uh, well, let's uh, come to it to refresh ourselves, to bring it back into our memory of what we're saved from what we are saved uh, through, and what we are saved to. So those are our two things. What are you saved from? What are you saved through? And what are you saved to? Those are our three categories here. And so we have to start off with where we are, and then we're going to go to where, we sh where God wants us to be and the avenue by which we get there. But along the way, we have to deal with some things. We have to deal with what other groups have done to the doctrine of salvation. Remember, these are the essentials of our Christian faith. Without these, you're really not a Christian, even if you say you are. So when you come to the doctrine of salvation, say, well, there's other ways to get saved, uh, or I'm creating my own way, don't call yourself a Christian and don't think that you are fulfilling what the Bible describes, uh, because that's just your own way. And whether, even if it's been codified in some doctrinal treatise in some organized church, doesn't make it any more right. And so if I say, well, you need to trust in Jesus and you need to, uh, you know, do this confession thing and you need to have this and then we keep adding on to that. And then after you die, you get to go and, and try to rectify some things and maybe pay for some things in another place of torment and then you can graduate out of that and get to heaven. That's called purgatory. Uh, and someone can shorten your time in purgatory by their activity here on earth on your behalf. We got all these things that we want to add to salvation that we have to address along the way. And so it kind of muddies the water, and error always does that. So let's talk about the need for salvation. Uh, we have two categories in the need. One is obvious to us. So we're sinners and we need to be saved. The man's side of the equation, uh, we have to recognize. The way we recognize the man's side of the equation is that uh, we can't keep the law. Right? The law is our schoolmaster. It teaches us that we're sinners. And so whether it's one law, whether it's ten laws, whether it's 600 laws, uh, it doesn't matter how few or how many, we fail it. All right? And so Adam and Eve had one law. And we talked about that when we talked about sin, the introduction of sin, and they broke it. Uh, we talked about, well, I'm going to live by the Ten Commandments. Well, good luck. You've probably already broken them all. Especially when you put into light the idea of if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. And if you lust after someone, you're guilty of adultery. So you add those two in, and now I'm, oh, I'm in jeopardy of all of it. And so when we come to this, we recognize that men are sinners, 
We have no hope in ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves from our sin. It is a hopeless cause. You cannot undo sin by doing good. Correct? No one can undo a sin by doing something good. If that were the case, no medical doctors would ever go to jail for murder. So I can murder my wife and say, but I saved 100 people at work today. Is that cool? No, he murdered his wife. <laughs> okay? Uh, and so that makes them a murderer. And they're guilty of that. They can save as many lives as they want, but if they kill one, they're guilty of murder. And, and so you can't undo a sin by doing good things. It just doesn't work that way. And we know that. We know that inherently. We deny it most of the time, but we know it. So that's called despair when there's no hope. There is no way we can save ourselves. No matter how much religiousness we include, no matter how much goody things we try to accomplish, no matter how philanthropic we are, no matter all those things, it doesn't matter. You cannot undo sin. You just can't make it go away. You can try to forget it. You can ease your conscience. That's what a lot of people are doing by all these other things. They're easing their conscience. They're not actually delivering themselves from sin because they can't. So once you tell a lie, you're a liar. Once I've stolen one thing, even if it's a postage stamp, I'm a thief. And so um, we're guilty, and that needs to be understood. So that's the need, is that we are sinners, we are guilty, we are in despair, and that means that since we could not help ourselves, we cannot remove sin from our life. We can say we're sorry for sin, but that doesn't make it go away. So we're in despair. But there's another part of this equation. So salvation has to meet your need. That you're a sinner and you're in trouble and you need to be delivered out of your sin. Right? So that's one half of the work that God has to do. Take care of you. But there's another person in this process that also needs to be satisfied. And that is what is God's requirement. So there's man. So man so there's a need for salvation because God... It has a perfect standard and has righteous requirements. And we often forget this part, and that's why in the Holy Spirit's work, he convicts the world of sin, yes, but also of righteousness. And so the world has to be convicted about who God is. He's the righteous judge, which means he cannot allow you into his presence in the condition of sinful. So he has some demands that have to be met, and that is you have to be holy, holy, holy to be in his presence. You have to be righteous. And, we, and so when we talk about meeting the righteous demands of God's justice, uh, it is a need that God had to understand. God, in planning our salvation, uh, understood that there's these two tracks. We want to deliver man from his despair, but I cannot compromise my righteousness in the process. So both needs are there. God needs to have his righteousness uh, met, and we need our sin taken away. So when we talk about devising a salvation, when God devised salvation, he met both of those, he satisfied both those requirements. He met both needs. <coughs> Most of the time when you hear people uh, messing around with the doctrine of salvation, they are usually 
dismissing the need for God's requirements to be met. And once we understand that God's requirements must be met, then we understand I can't be good enough to get to heaven even if I didn't sin very much. So it's not about how much sin I have, because one sin is too many, if I understand the righteous requirements of God's holiness. So those two needs have to be made, met, and God, in designing salvation, perfectly met both of those requirements. So, how does God measure us? Uh, and I have a little illustration here in your notes. God does not use a scale to weigh man's sin versus righteousness. And this is the way most people think of how to get to heaven. That there's a great big scale like this, right? And over here is the sin you committed, and over here are the good deeds you did. And you just got to make sure that the scales kind of go like this. And then you get in. And that's error. Uh, Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That falls short means that you don't measure up to God's perfection. And so the illustration I use there is a carnival ride. How many of you go to car or out of the fair or you go to those big places like cliffs or uh, Disney World or something and you go into those roller coaster rides and they have a line. You have to be this tall to ride this ride. Right? And you see all these, you know, 12-year-olds trying to stand like this, you know, and you kind of know they're on their toes a little bit, trying to get above that line. Uh, well, that's the measurement we're talking about. We're not talking about a scale that weighs out your good versus your bad. We're talking about a line that God says, you have to be this to get into heaven. And that line is perfect. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. Can you... And we all fall short of that line. We're not, we don't measure up to that. Uh, it is his holiness, his glory. We have to be equal to that, and none of us are. And I can illustrate that very quickly. The law helps me do that. I can ask people, have you ever taken the names Lord, name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Daniel, have you ever disobeyed your parents? You're guilty. So what does that mean? you are disqualified from going to heaven because you've broken the law already. Joshua, have you disobeyed your parents? You're already disqualified. You can't get to heaven either. Kylie, have you ever disobeyed your parents? She's thinking about that. She's not so sure. You ever disobey mom? Never. Oh, now don't tell lies because that's on the list too. You're disqualified. You don't get to go to heaven. You have need to admit that and recognize that the disqualification is you don't measure up to being perfect, to equal to God's righteousness. So that's what needs to be met. God demands death as the payment for our sin. There's nothing else man can do. He's without hope. So that's the situation. It's sad. We have a situation that we need resolved, and we can't resolve it, and that's despair. We are hopeless. This is a hopeless situation. The disciples, um, when asked who can enter the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus gave them a list, and they, and they, they, they realized the desperate condition, didn't they? What did they say? Who then can be saved? If the religious leaders of Israel are, can't get to heaven, who can be saved? 
And it's a true, honest question. What was Jesus' answer to that question? Did he contradict them or confirm what they said? Their, their fear? Do you know? His answer was, with men this is impossible. Great answer. You are correct, disciples. It is impossible for anyone to get saved. It is impossible for anyone, any man or woman, to get to heaven or child. It is impossible. But the next phrase is really important. He says, but with God, all things are possible. So we're, despair means that there's no possible way for me to fix this situation. And then comes an entity, a person, God, who says, I can do impossible things. And accomplishes your salvation which is impossible. So everyone who receives Christ as Savior is a miraculous thing because the impossible has just happened. Someone has gone from being a sinner to a saint. Someone has gone from going to hell to going to heaven. Someone has gone from being a child of the devil to being a child of, the, of God the Father. Wow. Spectacular. Okay? And so that's our hopeless situation. So let's talk about any questions on the need for salvation. Well, I'll be real straightforward for you. Okay, let's go on to the gift of salvation. So that's what we're saved from, our sin. How are we saved? We are saved through this plan of God and the only plan of God. In man's despair, only God could solve the sin dilemma. He did this through the person work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cited that and we cited Jesus Christ. This gift of salvation worked on at least three relational levels. So, uh, salvation isn't just about me getting my sins forgiven and then I can tool along and live the same life. If that's your idea of what salvation is, I pray this prayer, God forgives this sin, and now I get to go to heaven. If that's your idea of God's carefully crafted plan of salvation, uh, you are mistaken. God invites you into a relationship with him that is much more significant than just getting your sins forgiven. Because remember what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. So it's not just about getting your, your sins washed away. That just makes you a blank slate. That puts you at, all right, so imagine sin as being a debt. So sin sends you in the negative, 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 negative. And most people think, well, I just want that to be back to zero. Well, zero doesn't get you to heaven. Because that's still not sufficient. It's not equal to God's glory. What we need to be convicted of is righteousness, the re that we have to be righteous. And so that's much more than just getting my sins forgiven. And you'll see many uh, quote-unquote Christian uh, belief systems that all about how to get your sins forgiven. But that's not really the, enough to be saved and go to heaven. So we want to resolve the problem on, in, a, in terms of relationships rather than in terms of just getting rid of sin. Sin removal is important, but it's not all there is. So, here we go. We're going to do this in a very logical way. Number one, first of all, something has to come from Jesus to God for man. All right, Jesus had to do something 
with relationship to God on behalf of man. So those are our three relationships. So if you think of a triangle, I should probably bring the board over here and write this out. So you have God, Jesus, and man. God's demands have to be met, and man's need has to be met. Jesus has to satisfy both of them. So the first one we're going to say, what does Jesus do in relationship to God on our behalf? And we have several key words that we want to look at. Let's go to the book of Ephesians first to understand. Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, thank you, Bill. Yeah, go ahead and bring it, bring it up here. I'll draw this out. So we have this, these three parts of our picture, okay? And once they get it settled, we'll delve this out. So what are we doing? What is Jesus doing toward God on our behalf? Let's look at these. Ephesians chapter 2, are you there? I'm not, so we got, I got distracted by the board. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry, verses 4 through 9. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Keep going. Two more verses. So we talk about what was necessary for our salvation. And here in 4 through 9, we talk about God is rich in mercy and his love and all of that. But with Christ, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places, uh, all is accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is satisfying a requirement about, of, of God. And so in order for him to bring us to life, Jesus Christ had to pay for our death. Okay, because the wages of sin is death. So, uh, so we're going to put God on the top and we're going to put uh, man over here, his great need and we're going to put Jesus over here as the three entities we want to talk about. So in terms of what Jesus in order to help man had to do toward the Father. Okay? And we have certain theological words, propitiation. All right? These are words you'll see in the Bible uh, probably newer versions, you might see some different verbiage, but essentially propitiation is a good word to understand, is meeting the righteous demands of that, uh, the atonement, and reconciliation. Atonement means covering. Uh, we talk about the word sacrifice. He has to sacrifice, and then uh, a ministry of reconciliation. We're getting to Romans 5 uh, as well, and then Hebrews 2, of course. So, the demand of a righteous God is that a sinner must die. And so we have to have a death. Because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus Christ is going to die on our behalf. This is to satisfy God's demand. That, he, that sin brings death. This is what God declared before there was ever sin, uh, the day you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. And so death begins. And so Jesus Christ is going to make the payment, the propitiation of death. And God demonstrated his acceptance of that death through the resurrection. He made him alive who died so that we can then participate in that resurrection and have life. 
And so his kindness towards us is through Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we have the relationship between Jesus and God on our behalf. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 2. I know I'm doing a little bit out of order of what's in here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It reads, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. So, Jesus Christ had to be our high priest. And what was the high priest's role? Was to be a representative of the people. And so the high priest's role is to bring the atonement, the propitiation, the, the, the re requirement. His death was necessary in that. So he was not only the high priest, but also the sacrifice itself. He was both simultaneously. And so we find the death of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, being that which he brings as high priest to satisfy the righteous demands of God. And so he is representative. So he, his role as high priest is really before God, but it's on our behalf. The high priest goes in the temple. He's really dealing with God, but he is representing all the people of the nation that are out there behind him as he's in the Holy of Holy place at once a year, the Day of Atonement that he brings that in. So Jesus Christ as the high priest is doing this on our behalf. So theologically, Jesus Christ is doing all of this toward God, and so it's directly satisfying God's righteous requirements for us in our place. And so this is uh, the work that Jesus Christ does. These are the special words that you need to know. Let's go on to chapter 10. Hebrews is a great book to talk about all the aspects of of how God, how Jesus Christ met all of these requirements in Hebrews 10, verse 12. By this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, by one offering is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so he is the sacrifice, he is the high priest. Sacrifice. He is the high priest. And so he is meeting the righteous demands. But we also know that he has to have what? Perfection. And so he was tempted just like us, but yet without sin. He was a perfect sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient. It was a temporary covering that was really picturing a perfect one to come. And how did they try to do that? They tried to find a, a lamb without blemish, without spot. Uh, but even that wasn't good enough. It was temporary. It was really imagery for them to look forward to a perfect sacrifice, and that perfection was to meet God's demands. You and I can't do that. No one can. And there's kind of a frightening resurgence of Pelagianism uh, going on. And Pelagius, Pelagian taught that no, everyone is born completely innocent with no sin. And so you're all blank slates to begin with. You, have, you are not born with, with inherited sin from your forefathers. And so you aren't really a sinner until you actually sin. Uh, which is a dangerous situation because what does that make babies? 
Yeah, they are, they are now candidates to be sacrificed for someone else's sin if they have no sin of their own. And it's a very dangerous doctrine that I'm seeing resurge, and really it's reactionary doctrine against Calvinism, and it's error, and it's dangerous. And we're going to have to go back to sacrificing children to cover, you know, if we don't want to accept Jesus, we can do this. No, and that was the mentality behind child sacrifice. We sacrifice the innocent to pay for the guilty. All right, that is the, that is the, the foundation of child sacrifice. It's also the foundation of sacrificing a virgin. Okay, yes, tecas uh, down in Mexico. Uh, this is in their sacrifice. I, I was doing some stuff. I actually posted something on my Facebook page about to, uh, as that, you know, they were going through their sacrificial calendar. And regularly it was, we have to sacrifice so many virgins. Well, why? What is the concept of why do you sacrifice virgins and children? Because you're sacrificing the innocent to pay for the guilty. We all understand that. It's inherent even in false religions. But babies aren't innocent. Neither are virgin women. Innocent. Not in the sense of moral perfection. But the concept is there. And Jesus Christ, though, becomes the completely innocent that takes the penalty for others. And he does that to meet God's demands. So that's one area the Bible talks about very regularly. And then that whole idea of reconciling men to God. And so he is the reconciler. And, has a, and we join him as ministers of reconciliation. And that means that there is a broken relationship here. This is broken. There's a wall separated between man and God. And Jesus Christ is going to come in and reconcile that. He's going to broker a relationship between man and God and restore it. Or at least make it an opportunity to be restored. And so we have a broken relationship and now he is going to be the, the mediator between two parties. In that sense, he's kind of an attorney. He's a mediator. He's going to go between these two parties and may allow them to come back into a relationship that was once broken. That's reconciliation. To reconcile us to God, not God to us. It's reconciling us to God. We broke the relationship through sin. We are the ones who stubbornly hold against it. God has done everything, sent his son, and invites us to be saved. But we're the ones that hold back and say, uh, I don't need God. I can do it myself. And so Jesus Christ comes in, and he's the one that reconciles us to God because God's standards are not going to be lowered for you, for your benefit. So it's not going to happen. You can believe it will happen for you, that you're the exception to the rule, um, but that belief will only get you in the lake of fire forever and ever. It won't get you to heaven. So we sacrifice the innocent, the perfect, on behalf of those. So now there's another thing that needs to happen. And this is a relationship of from God to man through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ begins, and he does these, we started with this, he's going to meet the requirements of God the Father. Now, because he did all these things, now God can do something toward man. Because of this, God can now 
Offer man some things. Here's these special words. He, we can experience regeneration, justification, reconciliation, adoption, forgiveness, sanctification, glorification. These are all very precious terms. I would love to go through each and every one of them. Regeneration is what? Very quickly, we're just going to go through them real fast. I'm hoping you guys know what these mean. What does it mean to be regenerated? To be made new. Okay, the, the passage there is in, in uh, Corinthians 5.17. I think it's there. Uh, okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17-21. You are a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Regeneration is what Jesus meant when he talked to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. That's the word regenerated. You must be born over again. You must be given new life. You must be made new. The old man is put away and the new man is put on. Okay, that's something God does to man because of the work of Jesus Christ. These are the things that Jesus did before God on behalf of man. So now we have this list of things. So God is going to uh, give, make us reborn, regenerate, new life. All right? And then uh, justification. What is justification? All right, you're declared. He's going to say, he's going to say you're not guilty. Let's use the word count. Count you not guilty. You're going to get a not guilty verdict from God. Wow. All your sins are covered under this sacrifice that was perfect. So now God, on the basis of what Jesus did, can declare you not guilty. And this is a judicial term. You're no longer guilty of your sin. That's justification. What is... What's next? I have reconciliation there again, uh, but let, let's go to a, adoption. What is adoption? All right, you're made sons. So now you're offering sonship. God is going to make you his son. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Look at this. Look at this connection. He's going to make you on the same level in his eyes as Jesus in relationship to him that you are all sons of God. Joint heirs. That means equal heirs in the, in the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. He's made you equivalent there. This is the work of the Father for us because of or through Jesus Christ. And then uh, forgiveness. We understand forgiveness, I think. Sanctification. What is sanctification? To be set apart. For use and also for holiness. So we're going to focus it on holiness. And remember, we told, we said we had to be more than just zero. We had to have more than just our debt forgiven, our sins forgiven. Forgiveness is necessary, but we have more, we need more than that. Sanctification. You see, we have under justification, we have that you're not guilty. So that's forgiveness, and that's. Judicially, where sanctification is when you gain something in the positive. Now you're gaining holiness. You're gaining righteousness. You are set apart to God 
and to his holiness, to his glory. This is where we get the positive that qualifies us to come into um, God's presence. And then what is glorification? You haven't experienced it yet, but it's yours if you're a believer. All right, to be exalted. He will exalt those who humble themselves. Humble yourselves inside the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will glorify you. And that is, he will provide for you to enter into his kingdom, as I said, joined heirs of Jesus Christ, to participate in his glory that you've fallen short of. That was your need. Now he's going to give you exaltation. And so we're kind of combining uh, the concepts here of forgiveness of sin, your debt, your legal debt is paid for, but even beyond that, because of the ministry of reconciliation and the extent of the sacrifice, he is also going to raise you up, set you apart to righteousness, holiness, service, and exalt you. Now I can participate in heaven because I'm glorified. Remember, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so what we need in addition to forgiveness is glorification. We need to have this benefit added that we might be able to participate in heaven. And all of this God does toward us through Jesus Christ. Now, any questions on that? We didn't look at many of the verses. I referenced most of them, uh, but uh, they are there. You've had a chance to look them up. Any comments, questions? Hallelujahs. All right, the third relationship we want to talk about is what Jesus um, comes from Jesus to man. Okay, what is we? This is what he's done on our behalf, but it's really toward God. All those other things. What has Jesus done toward us? And these words are really about that relationship. So what does it mean to be re- redemption? What is redemption? Well, what does the word mean? To redeem. Buy to buy back. He has purchased us. Okay? He has purchased us. And this is key to really receiving Christ as your Savior and Lord. I am his he paid for me. Do you understand that relationship? What redemption means? I am bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong. You are, if you've received Jesus Christ, you have been purchased. This is the price. The price was huge. Price was paid not to the devil. The price was to satisfy God's requirements. So now we belong to Jesus. So we sing the song, I belong to Jesus, right? Because of a redemption. Redemption is Christ purchasing us. And then, uh, and let's, let's look at a couple of these because uh, I think it's worth developing because this is really the Christian life. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Let's go through some of these. Uh, Then we're going to talk about the indwelling spirit, which is in John uh, and other passages here listed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, 
for his ring curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And this one includes both concepts that I have here. That's why it's in the front end of this. So you have redemption. So you're redeemed from the law. The law requires that if you sinner, you die. That's required by God. Jesus Christ paid that price to God. So what does that mean toward you? He purchased you. He purchased you with his shed blood. The one he sent the payment to was not you, he made, or nor was it Satan. The one he sent the payment to was to God. Here's the payment for this person's life. Now we are his. The law of God required that. So, and then he says, then we can send the Spirit. So the, so the Spirit now is sent. Remember, Jesus Christ says, I go to the Father, and then I will send the Comforter in John. And so that's that relationship there between, from Jesus to man. This is what is required for your salvation. This is what God has done. He's done all of this, 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 uh, all of this. These are all things either Jesus has done for you to God, or God has done to you because of Jesus Christ, or Jesus has done to you directly. All of these are the activities of God. Do you notice that? Because the gift of salvation is God's gift to you, None of these words have you yet. <laughs> None of these words talk about what, you, what is required of you. That's our next point, which is the reception of salvation. So this is all what God's done. He has done all the work. He really has. All the necessary details he has done in Jesus Christ. Is, and now this is all available to you because of Jesus Christ. But it does require that you understand that you're going to have to be purchased by his blood and become his, which is going to be really important in our next step. Any questions on what God has provided in salvation? These are things you should... Is it time to go? Oh, man. All right, I don't want to shortchange reception, but let's talk about it very quickly. How do you get this gift? Oh, I forgot my wallet. For four weeks in a row in my Word of Life teens, I offered a gift to the teens. Came from the island of Cuba, and uh, it was just a keychain, and it was a little memento. I brought up home a bunch of them as gifts for pastors and stuff just to thank them for sending me in when I went to Cuba. Um, and I offered it as a gift for four weeks in a row, and no teen got it. Why? Nobody would accept it. All they had to do is say, can I have it? I'll take that. Or get up out of their seat and come and say, you said it's a gift for us? And just take it. The fifth week, I finally told them, I wanted to give this to you, but none of you wanted it. And they all said, well, I want it, I want it. I said, but I said, it's a gift for you, but none of you got up and accepted it. And so God has done all of this for us, but don't think that that automatically makes everybody saved. It's sufficient for everybody, 
but it only is going to be of any benefit to you if you accept it and make it your own. It is a gift of God. How do we accept our gift? Well, we accept the gift by getting up and saying, I will make it my own. We have to unwrap it. Did we pay for it? If you paid for it, it's not a gift anymore. I know some of you give gifts to yourselves. That's weird. Okay, it's not real. Um, you've just imagined that to make yourself feel good. Oh, I gave myself a gift. Um, you just bought yourself something that you wanted. That's all it is. Uh, a gift is something you haven't paid for. But if it just if someone gives you a gift and you just sit on a shelf and never open it, is it of any value to you? No, zero. You have to take it and open it and make it your own. And this is the process of receiving salvation. Um, but even then, amazingly, God initiates our reception. This is the gift, but then God goes beyond this. And this is what's incredible, and this is what's been confused by so many, is that, well, this is God making us get saved, and it is not. And, in fact, it's so incredible, I'm going to have to take, do it next week. There's no way I can cover this tonight. Um, because we have to deal with election and predestination and calling. And, but let's just make it very clear that God initiates your reception. And don't think that he does this only to some people. He does it to everyone. We're going to talk about convicting you, calling you, all right? Predestination, we're going to talk about that word in relationship to your reception. Uh, it is not predetermined, it's predestinated which means that he has a destiny he intends for you and for all, if only you would believe. That is that destiny. Destiny is not the beginning. It's not the process. What is destiny? The end. Predestination is not talking about getting saved. It's about what is the end of salvation. So God has predestined you uh, that he wants you in heaven. That's, his, that's the destiny he has determined, and it could be yours if you would just accept that destiny. But you choose a different destiny, that's, for your, pro that's your problem. It's foolish, but most people would pick that. So God has done extraordinary amounts of things to help us make, come to a decision. But he doesn't make the decision for us. He offers it and offers it and offers it. Will he make you feel bad about being a sinner? Yes, it's called conviction. Will he call you and invite you? Yes, that's evangelism. I'll give you the good news. I'll invite you to receive it. Um, we are part of that process, but you have to accept that. So we have God initiating it and then us receiving it, which involves repentance, faith, belief, uh, things like that. And then we're going to talk about lordship. So let's finish this up next week. And, and take our time with this because there's so many aspects. But I want you to know that you need to make a choice. Just because God initiates it, don't say, well, God never did that to me. Yes, he did. He did it for everyone. <laughs> God convicts the world of their sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? Not just some individuals. God has predestined everyone to be in his kingdom. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. These are the things. God has done everything and helped you to help you receive. You say, well, I don't have the faith to believe that stuff. Yes, you do. 
you're lying and you're calling God a liar. That's even worse. Because he has granted all men faith to believe. All men have faith. You believe in yourself. You believe in people. You believe in the political process. You believe elections work. You believe a lot of things that are nonsense. But why wouldn't you believe in Jesus Christ? That's kind of, well, that's a pride issue. So we're going to talk about that next week. Let's do that. Um, and we'll close up tonight. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time your word, and we thank you for so great a salvation that you have provided for us. And we want to uh, just honor you and know that we were, we were in an impossible situation, truly, uh, and that we were in, all we have is despair, and you've come and delivered us. And Lord, what a marvel. What a wondrous thing that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we know that the, there is an expectation uh, of, that we would participate as any relationship requires a reciprocal uh, aspect. And Lord, we pray that we might be people who uh, not only know your salvation, but have received it and walk in your truth and, and in your way. And Lord, we know that you've paid the price for us, whether we're willing to uh, surrender ourselves to you as our Lord, our Master, or rebel against you. You've paid the price, and for this we cannot cease to give thanks to your name. And know that we owe you all our life, all our choices, all our energies and talents, all of our thoughts and time. They really belong to you. You've paid for them. All we really deserve is death, misery, suffering. Lord, we thank you for so great a salvation. In his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.